Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to another High Resolution. I'm Seamus Byrne. Uh, this time around, I'm speaking with Thane Lyman. He's the general manager of MS1 Studios at Wargaming. Uh, he has a 17-year history at Activision across PC and console games. And what's really interesting now is that the studio he heads up at Wargaming looks after World of Tank Blitz. That is the mobile edition of the game, and it is celebrating six years uh, out there on the market. And so we talk about all sorts of things relating to making that transition from PC gaming and console gaming into this mobile space, uh, what it means to work in that free-to-play space and how the business models have evolved. That even leads to talking about putting uh, mariachi hats on tanks and what that what that does for the community and the fights over whether that was the right thing to do. Um, a really, really fun chat. What we do, we start in that place where we talk about uh, that transition into, into working in mobile. So here it is me talking to Thane Lyman, General Manager of MS1 Studios at Wargaming. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not an unusual transition now, right? As as mobile has turned into a legit gaming platform. Yeah. But I am maybe ahead of some of the other folks, right? Like, I think there will be a lot more of me coming. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, look, let's start with the really basics. You know, a tank MMO, for the people who don't quite understand what World of Tanks is and the wider world of, world of, games <laughs> um you know and then how blitz fits in i guess can you give us kind of the big picture view on uh you know what this kind of universe of games is yeah sure so uh world of tanks started as of course is the pc game um it is the pc version is a 15 on 15 team deathmatch, effectively of highly realistically rendered tanks with carefully uh uh, controlled and and modeled after the real world physics, you know, how it operates, the tracks, movement, independent turret, body movement, everything. Um, and uh, but again, is set in this world where, you know, any tank from any nation can play alongside anybody else. Right. There's no the the historical nature is very much about the tanks themselves, not about the, the sort of fiction. Yeah. Uh, world of Tanks PC is about. 10 years old now. It's hitting its 10th birthday, actually, uh, uh, this year. Um, huge success, especially in uh, in what 
we know here as CIS countries, Russian-speaking territories, basically for for kind of everybody else for whom CIS might mean a different thing in popular uh, acronym literature now. Um, so it's uh, it started there, and uh, six years ago, uh, World of Tanks Blitz was born, which was the uh, the younger, the mobile counterpart. Um, a number of differences exist between the two. Even at launch, uh, there are seven-on-seven seven battles in in Blitz, right, rather than 15-on-15. 15 15. Uh, the maps are closer. Uh, the whole space is, is smaller and is designed to get you into the battle faster. An average match on Watt PC can last you seven minutes, ten minutes. Um, the, the, the maximum is 15. Um, in Blitz, an average match can last you two minutes, three minutes, and the maximum is seven. So it's all designed to get, you know, with mobile experiences in mind. Yeah. Um, you know, we joke sometimes that, you know, the ideal length of a mobile match is basically about how long it takes that somebody can sit in the bathroom without anybody <laughs> noticing they've been gone too long. <laughs> so, so it was designed that way. And, and uh, it was also less sort of, rigidly historical. Um, and in fact, the longer we've spent with Blitz, the more we've really leaned into that. And so we've got now a series of tanks that are not just, you know, German, British, American, uh, uh, Soviet, uh, pan-European line, et cetera, right? But we've got, uh, especially for our events, where we've done some sort of fantastical things, leaned into fiction, we've got a line of kind of Gothic-style tanks, uh, a line of post-apocalyptic style tanks, right? So it's it's more and more embracing the fun and fantasy of driving these big hulking metal beasts, right? But without yeah. being so around the the historical nature of it. Yeah. And look, it might be worth sort of touching on that idea as well, that clearly um, a big part of that initial sort of fandom around World of Tanks, and I kind of totally... Yeah, remember a number of people, you know, around my sort of circle of friends who just fell in love with it because they were those military history fans. They kind of loved trying to, you know, and loved yeah. just how it focused on getting a lot of that stuff right. Um, you know, how how has that sort of fandom, uh, you know, evolved, I guess, but also then, you know, how do they sort of take to bringing in some of those kinds of fantastical ideas instead of the historical sure. ones? Well, I think, you know, the important part is when you're making these efforts, right, when you are going to the trouble of building a real tank, how, you know, do you go that extra mile, right? Do you work that extra bit to make sure that it's really right, that it looks good, that it feels good, that it it delivers on that fantasy of being in that actual tank? Right? Yeah. And then if you do that, and certainly what we've seen, especially on Blitz, but even a bit on PC, right, is... If you're doing that, then people who are playing with you for years and years and years, right, they're okay with a little bit of a change of pace every now and again, right? Yeah. That it's it's fine to mix it up, right? That you can't just you can't just hit fastballs all day, right? You need, <laughs> yeah. you know, you need some breaking pitches in there too. And and we've seen, look, on what PC, right, where I had spent uh, you know, a couple of years before uh uh running that and you know, we had these huge blood arguments about, you know, would we ever allow customization of tanks, right? So you could paint it to be the way you want it to look, right? Doing something that wasn't purely historical. 
And there were people on each side of this argument, right? Some people were absolutely not. This is faithful and our fans will revolt. And then other people who said, you know, like me, of course, thinking of the my days on Call of Duty, right? And remembering the most popular of all of our gun skins wasn't some super hyper-realistic thing. It was the bacon gun, (laughs) right? That makes the gun look like it's all wrapped in strips of bacon. I was like, guys, like, you'll, we'll have more success, right? Like putting a huge, you know, mariachi hat on the, uh, you know, on the top of a tank and Christmas (laughs) lights, right? And have it play, you know, mariachi music when you shoot, right? Like people will love this. (laughs) And of course, there's heart attacks going from the other side of the table. Um, But, you know, so we actually in the PC, we ended up with uh, building this button named for one of the guys on the team who was very anti this that would allow you to not show customization from somebody else. Right. So you could just see purity if you want. And we found that the most popular setting actually was people would turn on. They would allow themselves to see their own customization, but nobody else's. (laughs) So, right. So it. It sort of says everything, right? That people really love that ability to change it up and they're okay with getting past the purely historical, right? Yeah. And if you look then at the popularity of these tanks, the the Helsing and Dracula and the Lycan and all this in, in Blitz, for example, they're some of our most popular tanks. Every time we put those out available, people go rushing to get them, right? Whether it's earning it through an event or buying it in the store or whatever. So I think people really enjoy it. And again, the, you know, the important part is, do they feel like what you're doing is, is adding to their, you know, overall historical experience or are you being disrespectful of them? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask that, that I think it's like you've earned their trust. And so they'll come for the ride with you. Whereas if you do that too early, they're like, whoa, like, what is this about? Yeah. And I, I think also it's, it's a question of not just timing, but again, even in, when you do it, there's sort of, it's got to fit the rules of the play universe, right? Yeah. That you can't suddenly just introduce a bunch of things that put it on end, right? Uh, you know, if suddenly, if our Dracula tank could fly, right, <laughs> yeah. it's probably good, right? Like, that's no good. You know, you're now breaking the balance, you're breaking the rules. Players don't understand it, right? It has to be something that they kind of instinctually understand why it is what it is and how it works. And our Dracula tank, as an example, right, as crazy as it looks, this sort of bat, it almost looks like a Batmobile, honestly, right, with these, you know, black and kind of ridged wing pattern on the side. But you still recognize it as a tank. It looks a lot like the AMX CDC, for example, which is one of these super light French tanks. And it, and it fits that play pattern, right? It's super fast. It's mobile. It zips around. It fires quickly. You know, it's it's a as an opponent, right, it's a total nuisance because the last thing you want is to be facing a Dracula because you know it's just going to be running around all over you, right? <laughs> and and so, you know, the moment that somebody's in there playing, they're not looking and complaining, oh, this doesn't look historical, right? They're looking going, God, how do I shoot this? Right? <laughs> yeah, that's great. And look, I mean, that almost does speak to that idea again, I guess, like the how much do the developers enjoy taking all their expertise in being able to model these, you know, historically accurate tanks and then and then get to kind of play with a whole different idea for designing a tank in a new way? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is honestly some of the most fun, right, is the point when I look anytime we turn the guys loose on new, right, whether <laughs> it's a, a fantasy tank, right, or a new tank line that's historical or whatever, right? It's, you know, when you work on one game month in, month out for years and years and years, right, you you crave those moments of novelty, right? Those moments of of chasing some big new target, something exciting. And I mean, it's great for the fans, of course, right? New stuff is new stuff. Everybody loves new stuff. But for the people who are actually working on it, you know, eight hours, I say eight hours a day, but, you know, let's be realistic, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, you know, more a lot of times, especially when we're sort of near releases. Uh, those moments of levity and creative bursts are absolutely necessary, right? For keeping the team reinvigorated and, and allowing them to get that passion in again, right? So that the fans feel it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, let's talk a bit about, you know, sort of your, your background and then coming across this mobile space. We touched on it at the start there, but, you know, you've got a really deep uh, background across sort of PC and console from a long time at Activision, and then you've led, um, you know, World of Tanks, both in the PC space, and then you've moved to MS1 to lead the mobile studio. So, you know, what's that journey been like? And then I guess, you know, lead that into the, you know, it's like a GM role. It's not, you know, like you been a producer before how does that kind of sit with are you a little bit more hands off these days um you know or or is it you know a structured in a way that means you still get to kind of get in there and see all the action Mm -hmm. so uh yeah go bit by bit on this how to how to tell 20 plus years (laughs) in a a soundbite 30 seconds go um, right (laughs) there's a monty python bit about where they're doing proust in the round (laughs) <laughs> Feels like that. Um, so the uh, uh, I start yeah I started at Activision. I spent 17 years there. Uh, uh, when I first came in, actually, I was a lawyer. I moved from being a lawyer into setting up and running a green light process, and then a few years into that, then you know, and I I learned so much in that role because I got to see every single product and development in Activision going through its phases, right? And I got to understand hey, when things kind of look like this at prototype it tends to end pretty well. And when they tend to look like that at prototype, not so much, yeah, right? right? And, you know, pattern recognition, right? Mm. So much of the, of learning is just that. And I got exposed to all these patterns really fast, which was great. Then I moved into production from there. As you said, at that point, I was on, and I was still, you know, part of the hardcore PC brethren, right? At that point, you know, that no game could possibly be played on anything but a PC and be awesome, <laughs> You know, consoles were for inferior games. Mobile didn't even exist, right? Um, and uh, and I was doing, uh, uh, I was producing on the Activision side. I was the sort of the external partner for the studios building. Uh, uh, the first one ever actually was a, a game being built um, by, on id technology, by a partner developer to id uh, that later evolved into the multiplayer portion of Return to Castle Wolfenstein PC. Um, so that was one of my first big things. And then uh, uh, I got into more stuff, worked on Vampire the Masquerade PC, which was super fun, way ahead of its time. Um, actually, the first thing that had code released on the uh, on Valve's source tech, uh, which built, which was powering Half-Life 2, it actually code released ahead of Half-Life 2. We couldn't ship it ahead of Half-Life 2, but we did release it ahead for legal reasons. Um, 
then uh, an RTS with uh, with one of the guys who had built uh, Age of Empires, Rick Goodman, Empires Dawn of the Modern World. I got on the tail end of that. And I got going on on this really cool new shooter from a group of people that had just left EA and were looking to sort of build something that was different to Medal of Honor, uh, which was the Infinity Ward guys working on what at the time had no name, but ended up being Call of Duty, right? Call of Duty PC. And I was on Call of Duty for a decade plus, you know, run, uh, running the, the uh, production, first at senior producer, then executive producer, then VP of production. So just kind of climbing the ladder. Hmm. Uh, and then moved from there, moved over to Destiny. Uh, oh, I also, uh, during that time when we were doing a lot of games, I also at one point got thrown at me. I was VP of shooters, which is a bad business card for airplane flights, by the way. <laughs> um, but I was the VP of shooters and also then inherited at one point kids games. So I would spend Both my mornings looking at Call of Duty and yeah, my afternoon looking at DreamWorks titles, which was interesting. Um, and then moved from there. Yeah, Destiny, I was on there for the five years from the very first shots fired on that very first conversations with Bungie all the way through shipping Destiny 1. And then finally, you know, that was after 17 years, it was, uh, and being I employee, I don't know, 200 or something at Activision and it had grown to, you know, tens of thousands worldwide and being what it was, uh, you know, then finally it was time for, you know, for a break after, uh, after Destiny shipped. So I moved to uh, to the Emeryville office, the Northern California Bay Area office, having lived in L.A. for 25 years. Um, I moved uh, making what I thought was the huge cultural shift from Southern California to Northern California. <laughs> oh, my God. Right. Um, and got going with uh, with Wargaming. And, you know, there were so many parallels right here. I was joining a. Uh, a, a publisher that had huge success on one game and was kind of growing almost too fast for its own good, right? Needing to figure out how to work cross regions around the world, cross culturally, um, wanted to, you know, had a World War II PC based action shooter that they wanted to expand, right? Figuring out how to work through that, didn't have a green light process needed to set one up, right? Figure out how to expand into multiple titles. I, everybody talks about, oh, if I could do it over again. Here I was literally being able to do it over <laughs> again, right? In so many ways. So it was this awesome transition. Um, and then also I found out that, um, that it just culturally, the, you know, CIS, Russian-speaking culture and Western cultures are very different in how they problem-solved, in how they talk about things, and how they argue points, things like that. Um, you know, at Activision, as it matured in a corporate culture, it became more and more careful speech. And I tend to be a very direct speaker. Um, and, uh, and I found, ironically, when I came to Wargaming, my level of bluntness and directness was just enough that I was viewed as a guy who says what he thinks, which is good in CIS culture. Right. Um, while still being viewed as diplomatic. Yeah. Which <laughs> was not the feedback I was getting at Activision by the end. So, <laughs> so it worked out great, right? Like I, I managed to stumble into this perfect storm, right? Where, where, uh, 
from sort of a, a role and history of experience standpoint, I, it was a great fit. Culturally, it was a great fit. And, you know, I had thought about, I, for ages at Activision, I had thought, ah, you know, I'll do this forever and then eventually I'll go be a professor or something, right? When it all comes done. And then I got there and realized, wait, I'm not, that's, that can be a one-way door and I'm not ready to leave yet and just go talk about the time when I used to make games, right? I still have more <laughs> in me. And so finding this job, you know, has been brilliant, absolutely brilliant. So going in, yeah, I set up, I run, you know, what PC for a year and a half uh, after some initial sort of getting to know you phase of six months at Wargaming. Um, it's brilliant. It's a, it's a wonderful job. I learn an incredible amount about free to play. I learn an incredible amount about uh, about CIS audience and desires and what they like and how it's different from what you're used to in the West, even development team. Like it's really the hardest thing in Western development. Usually the hardest thing to find is really good engineers. You can find great designers and artists, you know, throw a rock out on the street, you'll hit one. Right. But finding a really good engineer is, is damn near impossible. And then when you finally do find one, Apple and Google come in and <laughs> offer to triple their salary and you lose them anyway. Um, in CIS, where it's a very science and mathematical and again, black and white, right and wrong answer kind of a culture, um, the sciences are, are, are well taught and there's tons of engineers. It's a very sort of a noble profession, right? It's viewed as a, as a very high-end thing. Um, you know, where in, in the U.S. now we're just teaching everybody, everybody's getting MBAs, right? Learning how to run businesses. Now, what those businesses will build and sell apparently will be made by Slavs and Eastern Europeans, right? Because they actually know the science. But, um, but it's, it's totally different. Here, it's harder to find than people who work the gray area, right? Designers and artists tend to work, technical artists work in a very black and white area, right? It's right, it's wrong, it looks good, it's realistic, it's not, et cetera, mm. right? But that real, let's imagine a thing that's not. Right. That that every American kid from birth is told, you know, you can be an astronaut, you can be the shortstop for the Chicago Cubs, you can be the president, you can be whatever you want. Right. There you're sort of almost from birth, you know, inculcated in, in dreaming, right? And imagining. And so you've got a lot of design horsepower there, but engineering is harder to find. Yeah. So it's it's flipped. <laughs> Yeah, it's an interesting time. And, you know, going to then from that, learning all the things that I learned, you know, and what PC, all about these things, it kind of gave me the missing links that I needed then to make this transition into mobile, right? If I had started immediately off of Activision into mobile, not knowing enough about free to play, not knowing enough about certainly about the Watt audience, about CIS culture, about CIS development, about CIS fan base tastes, um, it would have been too much too fast. Yeah, right? yeah. But these sort of transition steps, actually, now I've learned all the things I need to learn so that, you know, now that I'm on the on the blitz side and into mobile, I've I've learned all of these lessons slowly enough, right, that I'm really well positioned to enjoy. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How do you feel like around the whole free-to-play thing? I feel like these games have been around long enough now that it's like have has kind of the taste of what people, the ways in which people want to pay, the way people want to engage with the content. Has that sort of evolved um, over the past, I guess, 10 years or six years even with with uh, Blitz? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you know, if you look at the mobile industry overall, it's evolved unbelievably in six years. Like right? games, and, yeah. you know, in, in many ways for the better, in some ways for the worse, right? Certainly there is the worst. There's the, you know, these games that really are just, you know, click, click, click a button, don't do anything, now pay me, right? <laughs> where it's, where everything is gated by money, right? And that's not fun. And I, I don't like those kinds of games. I actually, when I was out after the Activision stuff and interviewing around, I, I talked to one guy at one point who was kind of trying to pull me into mobile early on. And he asked, so what mobile games do you like? And I looked at him, I said, God, right now, none of them, right? Because at that time, they were all basically what I lovingly refer to as alarm clock simulators, <laughs> right? Push a button. Now you get a thing. Okay, great. 10 minutes later, you get to come back and Hey, you can push another button. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, for the privilege, if you do that really well, you know what you can do in a half hour, right? Like that's <laughs> not game. That's yeah. not fun. That's not enjoyment, right? That's just harvesting. That's yeah. not a game. Um, Blitz actually was one of the first games that I played that was a game on mobile, right? That you could play without, look, I never had to pay them a dime, right? I started playing before I joined. You know, you never have to pay a dime to play and you can play infinitely, right? You can play as many matches as you want. You can pay so that you can progress faster. You can pay so that you can buy a particular tank that you really love. You can pay nowadays, you can pay to put a funny hat on it, right? To buy a cool looking skin, right? You can pay for all of these progress boosters and, and, you know, so customization, new tanks for collecting, you know, faster progress through, you know, up the tree, whatever, but you can play forever and ever and ever without ever paying a dime. And it's an actual game, right? Like it's a, it's a shooter. It's a, it's a great fun, you know, action vehicle shooter. Um, and again, six years ago, there wasn't, there just wasn't a lot of that out there. Yeah. Now, oh my God, right? Completely different world we're in where, you know, you've seen all of these other action games are now coming in to the, you know, to the scheme, right? So it's not all just social construct clan, you know, all push a button at the same time games, but real action games, real gamer games that I loved growing up are now available to play on this little thing, right? That I can hold while I'm on a train, on a bus, in the bathroom, you name it. Um, and, and so it's brilliant for that, right? The monetization, I think, has evolved alongside of it as people have learned 
that, you know, satisfy mobile monetization is not satisfying if it's sort of this, hey, you pay me, right? Yeah. You know, sort of a wall, right? What you need to do is give people things that they have the choice to buy or not. And that if they buy them, their first reaction needs to not be, oh, damn you, you got me, you evil publisher, right? Which is frequently yeah. that regret cycle you have, right? In, a, in some of these games. But actually, oh my God, I just got this thing and this is so fun. I love it, right? That's the reaction that, that I think is far more sustainable, right? Yeah. So for us, our sort of, our life theory on this, and it comes straight down from Victor Kisley at the top of, of the organization, and we all, you know, we're firm adherence to it in MS1, is start by just making something great that people will love. You'll figure out a way to make money on it, right? If people love what you're doing, yeah. you will figure out a way for people to pay you and they'll feel good about it and you'll feel good about it and the business will work, right? Yeah. But it's got to start with that respecting the gamer and giving them something that they love. Yeah. No, that's a really great way to think about it. Um, I mean, another similar question then is, in just that idea of, uh, you know, ease versus depth, you know, kind of finding that balance in the mobile space. Um, like I've had a bit of a play with it um, and it, you know, it it is perfectly comfortable to dive in and just start having some fun. Um, but then obviously you you want the kind of the people to really fall in love with your game and that means it probably needs to to keep offering more and more depth for those people. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, one of the things that we've worked on a lot in the last couple of years has been that initial experience curve, because there is actually a, a ton of depth, an amazing amount of depth in the game overall. But we found actually early on that we were overwhelming players with too much, right? Yeah. There's there's not just the sort of, look, it's hard enough for a lot of gamers, right, just to work the I'm pointing my body this way, but my turret is this way, and I'm controlling these independently. That's challenging, right? And the fact that a turret moves slower than your view, right? So you can be in a position where you're you're dealing with three things. You're moving your tank in this direction. You're looking in this direction, but your turret is still facing here, <laughs> right? That takes a minute. And then on, and then not only did we have that, but we had the issue of spotting a tank versus being unspotted, knowing where it is. There's a hunting aspect to the game, right? Mm. And then the question of angling and where's a good shot versus a bad shot. And then you throw on crew skills and consumables and equipment and perks and ah, la 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 la. And, you know, two different types of ammo and so on. So we've smoothed that out. So you see a lot of those things. It's still there, but you see it later, right? We expose you to it over time in a way that's far more comfortable. Uh, the tier 10 matches, right? The sort of ultimate, the titans of the game operate in a way that's completely different to the tanks that you play in tier one. Frankly, much in the way that a lightweight boxing match and a heavyweight boxing match, right? They're still theoretically both boxing. <laughs> yeah. But you know, watching the flyweights run around and just maul each other, right? <laughs> Versus, you know, the old Mike Tyson fights where sometimes it's like, okay, there's a little move, there's a little move, there's one punch and thanks everybody, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, I hope you enjoyed your pay-per-view. It's been 90 <laughs> seconds, right? Enjoy the popcorn. That difference is there, right? And it's because of that depth and strategy and all that. And And so the players, we also find people will select over time where is the most comfortable place for them right you know some people get to tier 10 and they just stop playing everything 
tens, right? They just play tier tens forever because they want that elite competition, right? And they want that. The price of a mistake at tier 10 is very high. If you shoot and miss, your reload can take a while, right? And so there's, there's nothing worse than that feeling of helplessness when you bounce a shot off the other guy's armor and that guy then comes marching in somewhat slowly <laughs> and you realize you're kind of screwed, right? All you can do is angle and hope that you bounce his shell, right? Yeah. But in that moment, he's got kind of a free shot. Tier one, you don't see that. Tier three, you don't see that. So there's this balance of speed, action, strategy, all that, that, you know, that evolves over time and people find what works for them and what they enjoy the most. And then they kind of, they, they flock to that, you know, once they've hit that tier 10 threshold. So we've got a lot of guys who will play tier five, six, seven, eight, that kind of mid the high tiers and really enjoy it as their regular thing. And then only go into tier 10 when it's time for, you know, you sort of put on the jacket, right. And you're like, okay, I'm in, let's go. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So is there, you know, are there any kind of moments from, I know you've kind of only been in charge of this section for a couple of years, but you know, through that sort of history, do you feel like there's any key moments where, um, you know, that the, the team kind of learn what, players kind of you know like things like you're talking about the interesting skins and stuff you know, where play, players have kind of gone yeah give me more of this or or even just spikes of interest in the game um based on the way in which it kind of you know pushed into new areas oh sure yeah look the um so the uh, a couple of years ago we came out with uh with a halloween mode called mad games and and Mad Games, boy, again, you know, it is a huge push off to the left from um, from the normal, you know, World of Tanks experience. Um, Mad Games was this, you know, post-apocalyptic themed map with, you know, with desert kind of style and dust storms rolling through and visibility challenges and all that. And all of the tanks then had an active power and a passive power that went along with it. And they were, not, again, it was not historical at all. It was only for Halloween. So everybody was okay, right? Yeah. It wasn't replacing the main game. Um, but it, you know, so these tanks, each tank would have some combination of actives and passives, right? And the actives were fairly extreme, like a kind of a turbo speed, uh, a vampirism ability where you could shoot a guy and you'd get health back when you killed him. <laughs> or if you turn that same power on your allies, it was a direct heal. Right. So you could shoot your ally and it would heal them for the damage that you would do. Right? Yeah, you right. could shoot the enemy and it would heal you. Yeah. Um, we had there was a, a literally a stealth power where you could basically go invisible and sort of suddenly turbo in a direction. Right. All these kinds of things. And it was, again, a huge departure right from the typical battlefield. Mm. And the players loved it. They couldn't get enough of it. I mean, it, the 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 uh, all of the usage metrics were through the roof. Um, and so much so, right, that when we went to turn it off, people were like, hey, w w w wait. <laughs> I wasn't finished. Give it back. <laughs> yeah, 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 give it back, give it back. Now, of course, we'd only, you know, we'd only done sort of the work to tune it and all that to, you know, to be able to be good for a weekend, right? Yeah. So, but we saw this, you know, this underlying love for it. And so then we did two things. Number one, we put a bunch of people on to kind of rebuilding mad games so that we relaunched it and we periodically relaunched it then as a as a running event for a longer time 
And then also it informed what is now uh, our last Halloween mode uprising, where we took this idea of these active and passive powers and then also added a choice element and uh, kind of a mobile uh, MOBA style in-game progression element where you'd get three lives, right? So you'd respawn. And at these various respawn points, based on how many points you'd gotten through the previous play, you would then be able to unlock some powers. And they had different costs, right? But you could choose which one you wanted. So, and it was great. Again, all, you know, way over the top. We had the... One power, you know, in all of this that is the most sort of trolly is one where you can actually look at an enemy and turn them, right? So you sort of flip their facing. So if they're showing their really great strong side armor to you, you flip them and suddenly you've got their vulnerable spot in your sights, <laughs> right? Uh, brutal to fight against. Amazingly satisfying, of course, if you're the guy who's playing it, right? Amazingly unsatisfying if you're the poor victim. Um but, you know, these kinds of things, are, again, huge departures from the baseline gameplay. But people loved it because it gave you something entirely different to, to do. It gave you a feeling of fun and enjoyment and, and novelty, right? You got to take all of your knowledge because it's not like all of the basic tank physics and all that didn't work, right? So you got to take all of that knowledge that you already know, but then adapt it to a new play pattern for a little while. And it kept it novel. We then built uh, for April Fools, we built a what we called gravity mode where you were and we even had a moon map, right, where we changed the gravity completely. And so people were taking these huge jumps, right? It was almost bad. Like some people were ignoring the gameplay entirely and they would just come in with their super light tank, find a, a <laughs> ramp, right? And just go, How far and go, go? flying across. <laughs> yeah. Like they'd immediately spot half the enemy team, right? Because they're. They're up like this. But it was super fun, right? And, you know, the the shot would push you back and, you know, the big jump would change. All this movement stuff. There was far more with the heavies, you know, this feeling of, whoa, (laughs) super turn. And I can imagine that that kind of, you know, the the people who love that sort of stuff, um, you know, and and just love this kind of a game – that they'd be getting so much pleasure out of trying to work out how can they break the mode. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. People were starting to, you know, like, Hey, can I rocket jump? Like, you know, <laughs> what's the, what's the limits here? And, you know, the fun thing again is these modes allow us a bunch of chances to be highly experimental. It gets the creative juices flowing on the team, which is super important. It gets the creative juices flowing in the community, right. About how they can play around with it unintended consequences, right? You know, things that maybe we didn't intend to have happen, but that they found or things that we sort of hoped that they would find, right? Yeah. But didn't tell them. And then it also, again, it gives them a chance to to change their, their play pattern and what they're reacting to, right? So that novelty is good all by itself, freshness. And then on top of that, it allows us to play around with things that we think might be really great and interesting actually for the main game, but that are way too revolutionary to just, you know, throw out there, right? Hey, let's try some tweaks to the physics. Let's try some, you know, tweaks to the armor, to the shooting model, to the monetization loop, to how much, you know, how many credits we give at the end of a battle, all these things, right? Mm. The, the modes allow us to play and be really adventurous without, you know, without our fans having to sort of suffer the consequences if we're wrong in the meanwhile. Yeah. 
That's a really good point. Um, so last couple of things. Uh, one is, is there much kind of overlap between the, you know, the PC players and the mobile players? Do you have kind of much of a sense of how many kind of, you know, do play both? Yeah. So there's, there is an overlap. And I think, of course, as more people get mobile devices, you know, it's, it's easier to find it. But we definitely tend to find that people have their preferred platform and their preferred style of game, right? The, the, the PC game, the console game, the mobile game are all slightly different to each other in the way they operate, in their pacing, in their intensity, and in what they value. Uh, the PC version has this class, artillery, already everybody calls it, that is highly polarizing. Some people love it. Some people want it deleted from the game, right? We don't have that. Uh, you know, and again, it's, you know, for us, you know, Blitz is more fast paced and frantic and, and I think caters to a different crowd, right? If what you want is that really super semi ultra hardcore action, right? The PC is probably your better home, right? If what you're looking for is a little bit more high action, fast paced, faster battles, right? Then that's, you know, Blitz is probably your better place. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there is overlap. There are people that play both, but we definitely tend to find, even if people play both, they sort of are overall one or the other more. Right? Yeah. And that second one is sort of a, an occasional play, right. Versus their, you know, their everyday hub. Yeah. Um, so as a wrapping up question, I thought, uh, you know, Thane of 2020, Talking to uh, you know former PC master race Thane, uh, you know what would you say to encourage him to to slide on over and give Blitz a try? Right, <laughs> God. I, well, first I'd have to explain what Blitz was, right? What? <laughs> and that, by the way, I'm now running a mobile game studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. In in a former Soviet country, right? That if I, if you had told yourself as a teenager that you'd be living in Minsk, learning Russian. Right. You have a bunch of friends here that, you know, you go, you know, like this like, is your life. The Red Door like, movie was, was true. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like this is not like look in the mid 1980s. Right. This was impossible to imagine. Yeah. Right. Literally impossible. And now here it is. I So I'll tell you, interestingly, a couple of things that I would tell myself that I didn't think about then were um, start pay attention earlier to the lessons you're learning from Infinity Ward about the importance of development tools and publishing tools, right? That the best developers on the planet are only average if you only give them one shot to build their game and iterate on it and make changes to it before they release. Yeah. And the most average guys can be amazing if you give them 30 shots on goal in that same time. Right. We have done in the two years that I've been here, we have put so incredibly much effort into into development tools and publishing tools to allow the the hopes and dreams and aspirations of the team to actually make their way into the community. Right. Onto the page in the way they intended, rather than just sort of the, the first shot at it. Right. The first effort. So I would certainly push around that. Um, and and lean into that and embrace that. Right. It's not just about. The value of an engine isn't just how many pixels it can push, right? How many polys it can render. It's how easily does it allow a content creator to translate their vision actually into the game. And when they've done it the first time, to change it and then change it and change it and change it again, right? So that they can listen to the users and keep tweaking it until it's great. So I would absolutely put on that. 
And then I would push, I think, on on uh, getting more people inside of that Western. There's more experience in Western development, right? There's just it's been around longer. People have done more things. Um, I'd be lobbying some of my friends earlier and faster to come in with me. Right. Because the merger, we've now got enough sort of West and enough East and even, you know, there's sort of, you know, I don't know what you call it, even near East, right? CIS, Russian speaking folks. We've even then added a bunch of talent from actual uh, Far Eastern Asian culture uh, studios as well. And man, that the advantage that we have as a studio that is truly cross-cultural, that has people from different backgrounds, different ways of understanding and enjoying a game, different ways of thinking about how you develop a game, values different things, recognizes the importance of different things, right? Our, it's like a, it's a zone of coverage, right? It's like a spotting ability, right? When all of your people are from one group, your spotting radius is very narrow. You can, you may see very deeply but only along a very narrow line, right? As we've added more people from more backgrounds, our our zone of coverage gets wider and wider, right? And so we're able to actually understand and speak to and satisfy a far wider range of gamers. And we don't miss so many things, right? This, This merger of different cultures and backgrounds and all that and experience levels and focus points, it has been brilliant for the growth of the studio. Morale is super high. I, Blitz is reinvigorated. I mean, we're our revenues are like 60% higher on a game that was four years old when I came in or 60% higher than they were four years, you know, two years ago, right? So at our sixth birthday, you know, we were here and now we're here, right? And with that, we've got some new products that we're working on, you know, renaming the studio, moving even into a new office, right? Like the the joy of all of this is amazingly high. And, and it all comes from, a, from those, those kind of important things of embrace making the developers' lives better through tools and embrace adding to your, uh, to your overall scope of capabilities, right, by taking from diverse pools. Those two things, I think, are huge, huge hallmarks of, of how we've been able to be successful on on this game and how we're well positioned for the future that's awesome look i adore your enthusiasm for you know for this it sounds like uh you know you've it just feels like you've landed in a place that you know maybe earlier in the journey you didn't know this is where you'd be but that it's it's a really awesome time yeah it really is and and you're right like it you know if you'd asked me at first like hey do you want to move to minsk my first question would have been what minsk (laughs) like you know if you go back far enough but yeah, I'm having the time of my life. It, it is a thrilling ride. It's super fun. And I am, I'm loving the game and the team and all the stuff that we're doing. It, it is absolutely the most fun I've had in my career. And again, when you think about the, the other things that I've worked on, that's a hell of a thing to say, right? To be able to be in that position. And what's your favorite local food? Oh, boy, there's so much. So um, the... The one of the most sort of quality traditional bits here is a thing called dronaki. It's basically like a potato pancake. Everybody makes it a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, and then what it is, what is served over it can be wildly different. Whether it's a, a a very thick gravy and mushrooms and meat and things like that, that or awesome. or lighter. Oh, it's so good! It's so good. Yeah. The uh, the food here. I grew up in the Midwest. 
right? Actually in, in Chicago. And in a lot of ways, I've come to realize that, that living here is a lot like living in Wisconsin, just with different accents, right? The, the food is super hearty. You know, it's all meat and potatoes, you know, thick quality <laughs> stuff that will keep you going through the winter. Yeah. And the winter is no joke, right? <laughs> yeah, but it is. It's it's a lot of fun. And uh, the people are just brilliant. You know, again, it, there's this sort of, you know, if you're from the Midwestern U.S., you talk about this sort of Midwestern hard work ethic and charm and sort of fundamental decency to how people treat each other, right? It's not about, you know, how much money do you have or what can you do for me? It's about like, what kind of, what's the quality of you as a person? And I feel that very much here as well. It, it's a it's a great place to be. Again, it takes a little while to get used to the accents. It takes a while to get used to the body language differences and some of that stuff. But once you make that jump, oh, it's great. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.